Welcome everyone to So As We Were Saying, a physical therapy podcast. I am your co-host, David Pastrana. And I am your co-host, Mike Reeves. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Today, we will be talking about utilizing pain science education in practice. Thank you, David. Uh, I'll give myself a quick introduction. Uh, physical therapist, athletic trainer, and certified strength and conditioning specialist currently working in Philadelphia. And professional or semi-professional ultimate frisbee player at one point? Former. Former. For, for. <laughs> <laughs> and I am David Pastrana. I'm also a physical therapist. So traveling physical therapist for a few years. Just recently decided to take a perm job. And Mike and I kind of decided to start this podcast just because, at least from my end, I saw a lot of variability in regards to how people were interpreting topics in the profession, how they were being applied to clinical practice. And I thought it would be good to have a platform to create a dialogue regarding how we interpret the research, how we interpret the uh, information that's been coming out, and just have a discussion and a dialogue with with Mike, um, who is my former classmate. You know, we had these going back in school as far as how we were interpreting information and I think we had some good discussions and good dialogues. I think should be in for a good series here. All right. Well, we will see how it goes. Mike, what um remind me, what settings have you worked in up until this point? Kind of give me like a brief review of, of what, what type of settings you've been in. I have been primarily in outpatient orthopedic clinics and or sports clinics. Right. Uh, so I worked as an internal traveler and primarily was in underserved areas uh, in Pennsylvania. I uh, was in Oklahoma for about nine months and then also worked just a little bit off of Hilton Head Island for a few months. Very cool. Um, yeah. And what um what types of populations would you see? What was your distribution? Was it mainly like those 40 and above um, weekend warrior types? Was it, you know, Medicare? What, what were you really seeing in your experiences? Yeah. So it all depended on the clinic that I was at. So I was fortunate enough to be exposed to six different clinics over the course of about two and a half years and kind of it was very variable uh, what we would see so when you're in kind of underserved areas a lot of times what you get is kind of your a little bit older a lot of comorbidities involved uh, a little bit lower healthcare knowledge when you start to get in more affluent areas uh, right. for instance when I was down in Hilton Head Right. Uh, you, you get a lot of very active people. They were older, but they were very active. A lot of times the goals were, I want to get back to playing golf or tennis and they're 75 years old. So that was very different than someone who's 55 with all sorts of health conditions. And their goal is just being able to get around their house. Right. And that health literacy, like you mentioned, is super important as far as getting that carryover from the education on day one. As far as my experiences, Mike and I both worked as interns and I worked as a full-time employee at a sports medicine facility. So we have our fair share of post-ops, um, a lot of variability in the post-ops we saw. Mike, your particular interest or I think specialty would be the knee and the shoulder. Is that, is that right? Or Yeah, I would say so. I do a lot of knee, good amount of shoulder, not as much shoulder anymore since I made the uh, transition over to, to start working with pediatric sports. Right. Uh, so Currently, it's been a lot of knee surgeries and a lot of concussion. Right, right. And I mainly saw spine. And then inherently, when you when you see a lot of neck and low back, you get some hips and shoulders that are kind of um, clumped in there that have multiple issues going on in relation to their primary complaint. 
And then once I started traveling, I was in a few outpatient ortho clinics, mainly throughout California, Central Valley, Central Coast. And then I ended my travel journey in uh, Seattle here, uh, working at another outpatient clinic that, that pretty much saw anything from young, young adults to uh, you know, older Medicare patients with a variety of orthopedic issues. But experiences aside, we'll get into our, um, our topic for today. Mike and I are going to be creating a series of eight different episodes, essentially talking about different topics in the profession, things that we're passionate about or things that we feel are either misunderstood or explained in a little bit of simpler language to get better carryover for when we educate our patients. Today, we're going to be talking about utilizing pain science education in practice. Mike, does this topic bring any particular interest to you? You can say no if, if that's the case, um, but I'm more interested to get your perspective because I know your background is more of a um, orthopedic sports approach, and I wanted to see how, how or if you utilize this in practice. Yeah, so I think it's uh, kind of cool. You know, we, we always talk about you know, pain science education, and most of the time you think about it uh, within the chronic pain population. Uh, so something that I personally have been kind of playing around with is when do I start to work this in to my orthopedic and sports population that I deal with? Currently, I've been playing around with introducing some of that education in early so that as we go throughout the rehab process, my patient feels comfortable letting me know when something does bother them early on. And then I let them know, yeah, that's OK. That's not. And over time, they start to be able to kind of make some of those decisions uh, on their own. Right, right. I think um, that's a good point is using it early, using it day one. And I think the difficult part when it comes to pain science is it's a very general category that really describes a huge body of knowledge, whether it's immunology or pain neuroscience or even gradual mechanical loading. Um, there's a lot of different variables, a lot of different topics to educate your patient on. And sometimes it's hard to choose. So I think the hard part is a lot of times we think of pain science almost as an intervention, which I think it's really something that we're constantly doing and something that we're constantly implementing in regards to just sharing our knowledge with the patient and um, helping connect our knowledge of neuroscience, immunology, biomechanics, whatever it might be, to their individual story. So before we kind of get into how we use it in practice and what we've kind of seen and what we would recommend, um, I wanted to touch a little bit on the biopsychosocial approach and, and how it's involved in, in all of this, whether you use it only with chronic pain, whether you use it with everyone, or even what it means to you. Because uh, oftentimes, I know when we were in school and I've been to a few pain neuroscience courses, the term kind of gets thrown around. You know, you have a chronic pain patient and they say, well, use the biopsychosocial approach. And I think it leaves a lot up to interpretation. And oftentimes, I think people feel really confused as to what it actually means. So kind of give me your perspective, Mike. What do you think about all this? Do you use it just with chronic pain? Do you use it with acute pain? Um, what's, what's your interpretation of the, the biopsychosocial approach? Yeah, so I think it's, it's a little bit different with like acute versus chronic pain. I don't necessarily use it very much with acute pain mm -hmm. because like there's, there's an active healing tissue there. Right. So it's, it's different. Now, this is a significant, it's, if it's a recurring injury, maybe, but overall with acute pain, I tend to not use it all that much. Right. Uh, chronic pain, uh, I'd use it a little bit more. Um, it all depends on the person. If it's someone that their pain has seemed to kind of shut down their normal activity, uh, then it's someone that, that I might introduce some sort of 
biopsychosocial stuff. One thing that you hear thrown around is like CBT. Right. Uh, so when you look at like real CBT, it's very in-depth. Uh, it's hour-long sessions, keeping journals, logging activities. And, and I have had um, some of my patients keep an activity journal before right. and just say, hey, what, what, are, what are three things um, that, you, that you might be able to add into your day to keep you a little bit more active? We break down some of those things. And I have them come back and, and we talk through how many times they did them. They break out their journal and they um, and they'll say how many times they did it, you know, that day. And it just like allows them to see like, OK, I was able to do these things. It didn't feel like much of the time, but right. my activity has increased. So that, that that's one thing that I've introduced, but it's not not very often. Normally, it, it's simply simply more along the lines of, OK, this, this pain, you know, it can kind of shut you down. What we know is that activity seems to help things go away. Why don't we just try and do just a little bit more than you've been doing, whether it be walking, whether it be um, sitting down and standing up from a chair, you know, or even ADLs, exactly. Four times a day, just, just simple things to add in uh, throughout their day. And, and for our listeners, CBT, um, if you're not familiar, is going to be cognitive behavioral therapy. It's going to take components of how the individual perceives movement in the context of, of pain really looking at whether they think more activity is going to worsen their pain or their symptoms or whether they feel like they can just shake it off and they end up overdosing on exercise and now they've just become so fearful of movement because they haven't had that gradual loading or dosing of activity to get back to normal function. And I really like what you touched on in regards to the the activity journal for those specific patients who do have fear avoidance. It really helps them track their progression and really see how they're increasing their activity levels over a longer period of time. One thing that I did want to touch on is you mentioned um, trying to uh, incorporate it with an acute patient depending on how they're presenting. And I think this is something that a lot of clinicians are looking at right now in regards to low back pain. I know that uh, Stephen George from the University of Florida has been developing a start back tool, which if you've heard of it, essentially looks at someone with uh, low back pain. It looks at different variables regarding their symptom presentation, um, psychosocial components, and it stratifies them as low, medium, or high risk for developing chronic pain. So this is going to be important as far as giving to your patients with low back pain because it's going to help you prevent those patients, or at least identify and then prevent those patients that are high risk of developing chronic pain and really uh, utilizing pain science when when their pain is still acute to help prevent the development of chronic low back pain and hopefully you know prevent the use of future future opioid use and, and abuse and all those negative things that we're dealing with in society currently. So the main thing I wanted to get into um, with this podcast is really to try to look at how we're utilizing pain science with uh, different patients, whether it's acute, gradual onset, post-op patients, or chronic. So, Mike, I want to start with uh, acute and gradual onset patients. Um, these, I'm thinking, are going to be like your, you know, your 55 or older, gradual onset shoulder pain. They go to the doctor, the physician. Maybe they get an imaging, maybe they don't. And these are the ones that are a little bit, uh, let's say, hesitant regarding how therapy is going to help them, they say you know, well, don't I need an MRI if there's a muscle torn? How is, you know, exercise going to fix a torn muscle? And we've seen a lot of uh, discongruency between uh, imaging and what people actually experience. So I think the pain science education in in this uh, particular patient case is going to be bridging the world between how exercise is going to help them 
and how what they experience is not necessarily relevant to their their pathoanatomy. So do you typically use it with these patients? If you do, what are some things that you touch on? Any examples? Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say it's my first line of defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first line of defense is try to reproduce their pain. Okay. And that way they know that I know what I'm talking about. Then I see if I can change their pain. Um, if I can change their pain through something like a shoulder symptom modification procedure or right. something along those lines, then that in and of itself gets buy-in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't necessarily feel that I need to dive into uh, too much of pain science education and things along those lines. Um, and then, and then it just kind of becomes that thing. Most of those people with, you know, they're 55 years old and they've, they've had pain for a while. Right. They, they are okay with pain with some of their exercises. Right. Um, at least in my experience, I don't completely shy away. A lot of times I find that they might try and want to push through things too much more, more so than, than not enough. Um, so then also kind of finding that happy balance with them. But I, but I, but I think, with that population, it tends to not be my initial line of defense. Um, but if they do present with some other things, you know, potentially they talk about all sorts of extra social factors and things like that. It might right. come in, come into play. Um, but yeah, not, not first line of defense in that population. So I think you hit on some pretty good, important points here. You can use that symptom modification procedure to, um, help change their symptoms or demonstrate how biomechanics or movement can really alter what they feel, that in itself is going to help increase buy-in. And I think it's important to look at your patient's symptom irritability as well. Um, The ones that are going to respond to that symptom modification procedure are probably going to be your moderate to low irritability. Um, The ones that have, you know, full active range, but maybe some end range pinching, maybe a, uh, a painful arc, things that you can really change by either adjusting scapular position, facilitating rotator cuff activation, um, even changing uh, the, the posture of their thoracic spine. And for those who aren't familiar, that symptom modification procedure is a study from, from JOSPT that, that looks at how changing different um, components of either posture, shoulder blade position, rotator cuff activity can change what the patient experiences when they do a certain movement. So it's definitely a good article to look into if, if you're interested. Um, I think when um, you get a shoulder patient that has high irritability where they can't even lift their arm, let's say, you know, beyond 45 degrees, and I think this is the most challenging case, and they have, let's say, an MRI that says that they maybe have a partial tear or maybe just a tendonitis, and their symptom irritability doesn't really match the imaging. Um, I think these patients are a good opportunity to help bridge that gap between, you know, why is their pain so high versus their imaging, which really doesn't demonstrate anything significant. I think these patients sometimes get written off as as crazy or dramatic or emotional when that may not necessarily be the case. So I think when it comes to shoulder patients, especially if you're looking at workers' comp, um, one thing that I think we should all consider is is load management. If you have a worker who's working 10-hour shifts washing dishes, they have gradual onset shoulder pain, and they're coming to you after working, you know, four or five 10-hour shifts, you know, there's no amount of exercise in the world that's really going to help you at that point just because you're constantly creating a stress overload injury, and you're going to kind of keep yourself in that state. So I think load management is one of those topics within pain science that's not necessarily related to pain neuroscience, but can really help your patients grasp the idea of how exercise is going to help them. So one thing that I think 
you know, I definitely look at is, does a patient interpret their structure as determining their experience or their function? And if so, really teaching them about what is transmitting pain to their brain. So if they are, you know, an acute shoulder pain patient who just really doesn't understand how exercise is going to help them, their irritability is too high to get the buy-in with any symptom modification procedure because everything's painful. You know, what can you tell them to help bridge that gap? Mike, you want to jump in and tell me how you would handle the situation or anything you would say? Yeah. um, Something that for that specific population, I think could be potentially beneficial is um, some of the stuff that Adrian Lau talks about uh, where he discusses the alarm system. Uh, So whenever you have that, it's easy to discuss with a patient that their alarm system has kind of been raised. So now their, their threshold for setting that, setting off their, their pain alarm is, is much lower. So simple things that were not painful before now become painful. So our job is not necessarily targeted at the, at the shoulder itself right now and and healing that issue. It's more just kind of calming, calming down that alarm system. Right. Um, and so however you think might be beneficial for that patient to do so, whether it be, you know, simple shoulder exercises, whether it just be, hey, why don't we just ignore the shoulder for right now? I just want you to, you know, go for walks and things like that throughout your day. Or Adrian Wild would probably argue for any sort of low intensity cardio activity, whether it just be going for a walk um, for 20 minutes a day, riding a stationary bike for 20 minutes a day, right. anything along those lines that might not even be targeted at the shoulder, but might decrease that alarm system that that patient has going on. Right. So you, you touched on two important topics here. Um, first was the alarm system. And I think that's a great analogy to um, describe two phenomena. The first one is going to be um, your peripheral hyperalgesia. That's going to be the, the chemical changes that occur at the peripheral nerve, at the site of the injury, this is going to be um, changes in your inflammatory inflammatory biomarkers, things that are going to sensitize that nerve to detect stimulus at lower thresholds of intensity or, or lower thresholds of, of mechanical stimuli. And I don't really try to get into the, the nitty gritty of the pain neuroscience with the patient. I think the alarm system is a great analogy. Um, something that I usually tell them is whenever you have an injury to a site, essentially your nerves in the area start to detect information almost amplified and that information is sent to your brain and then the brain tells you hey you need to change what you're doing for a little bit to allow time for this to resolve Um, now the big thing that i try to explain with these patients as well is finding a dose an appropriate dose for loading Um, so what that means is if you don't do anything and this is something that i would tell the patient if you don't do anything and you just wait for the tissue to heal when you go back to your normal activity you're going to create another pain process because you're not going to have that resiliency to future mechanical stress. And if you try to just work through it and push through it too aggressively, you're going to keep yourself inflamed and keep it irritated. So exercise is not only about building strength, but it's about controlled loading. And the dose of that loading is what's going to help you build resiliency to future stress. And you know that's why you come for us for our expertise um, regarding um, the dose of loading. If you were to think about it like you have a, um, say, an infection and you somehow had access to antibiotics, you wouldn't necessarily go in your medicine cabinet and try to guess the appropriate dose of antibiotic to get rid of your infection. You would consult with a medical professional for the appropriate medicine and dose. And that's um, something that I really, really try to talk about with those hired ability acute patients that aren't necessarily chronic is the role of gradual loading and improving the resiliency of, uh, 
of the nervous system and the resiliency to future stress using that exercise to build their tolerance rather than necessarily fix a pathoanatomical injury. And I think this is part of why some people have, you know, gradual onset shoulder, shoulder pain without any necessarily pathoanatomic injury is that they have a stress overload that creates that, that peripheral hyperalgesia with those central sensitization changes. And I think what you were referring to with the aerobic activity, as far as decreasing that alarm system, really touches on that central sensitization and decreasing the alertness of, of the nervous system. So without getting too in detail, I wanted to talk about some of those neuroscience changes just to help some, some of our listeners really wrap their mind around it. Um, the first one is going to be decreased spinal neural thresholds. So what that means is when you have an injury, you get that peripheral hyperalgesia, peripheral nerves detects stimulus at lower levels. Um, that message has to get transmitted to the spinal cord at the, at the dorsal root. So when that first order neuron goes to the second order neuron at the spinal cord, that decreased spinal neural threshold, essentially all that means is the energy required for the spinal cord to receive that message is decreased. And it allows that message to be transmitted a little bit more efficiently to the spinal cord. And then when the spinal cord transmits that message to the, uh, the brain, the thalamus, and then eventually linking to the uh, primary sensory, sensory cortex, those messages need to be transmitted more efficiently. So that's all that means when you hear those decreased spinal neural thresholds. At the same time, our brain always has a constant level of activity, which is increasing our awareness to our body. And when this process is interrupted, it's known as cortical inhibition. Our, our brain is constantly blocking out information that's irrelevant and you know, trying to interpret information that's new, changing, or more relevant to the task at hand. So I think the best example of this is if you're sitting in a room and there's an air conditioner on in the background, you probably don't notice that the air conditioner is on until it shuts off. And this is an example of cortical inhibition. It's a constant, non-important stimuli, and your brain essentially blocks out that information as irrelevant, and only when it notices a change in the system do you actually realize that it was on the entire time. So what happens is when you have this decrease in cortical inhibition, your brain's awareness to the area essentially increases. And for any of those who have had an injury, you've probably been aware of that injury or even a little bit more sensitive to that site, even after you know, the surgery or the tissues healed or whatever it might be. And some of this you know, may be due to those central sensitization processes. So I think what you were referring to with the aerobic exercise as far as just getting the nervous system as a whole to calm down is a really good point. Sorry, Mike. Kind of took us on a tangent there. I love your tangents, David. One of my favorite things. <laughs> All right. Um, so as far as your post-op or your acute traumatic patients, what are some things that, that you talk to them about in the first visit that you feel like are really important to their success? Yeah. Um, so I think when you're, whenever you're dealing with a significantly like acute injury or someone that's like super early post-op, targeting the injured area is difficult, right? Because it can't handle much load yet. Right. So generally your rehab becomes making sure that you're preserving simple range of motion, things along those lines, and then working around it, making sure that once you can get back into doing activities, you're not dealing with working around weakness and all the other muscles that you might not necessarily have as your primary intervention, but then they become more important to add in, into your into your rehab process if they become weak. So something as simple as, you know, heel raises for someone who had an ACL surgery to make sure that their calf strength 
continues to come along right. working in some sort of hamstring strengthening, obviously quad activation and, and quad strengthening is going to be the main thing early on, but especially with the athletes, which I, which I tend to work with uh, making sure that all the other building blocks for all the other high level movements that you're eventually going to get into are, are being addressed as well. And just by simply doing some of those things, things like their heart rate gets up, putting stress through their body, they're feeling like they're getting some sort of a workout and it's being done safely. And I think all of those little things kind of add up to a more successful outcome long term, gets the patients to buy in. And I think all of those things combined will also help decrease that patient's pain with the injury that they're dealing with at the time. And and as we're kind of letting that heal, so you have all, all, all sorts of psychological things, all sorts of physiological things that kind of help come together just because you were kind of willing to kind of work around the pain and kind of give that patient things to do that don't necessarily hurt their injury. Right. And what do you feel are some components that really hinder your progress early on with your post-op patients? What are some pitfalls that you saw? We are going to do a whole episode on post-op patients and, and what, what we typically do and look for when we don't have a protocol, how we you know, essentially create our own protocol when it's not available. So I don't want to get into it too much, uh, but talk to me a little bit about some pitfalls that you've seen with post-op rehab due to poor understanding of the rehab process and pain science and what are some important or educational information that you give on the first day to prevent those pitfalls from occurring? Yeah. So some, gosh, that's a tough question. Uh, so <laughs> some, some of the, I think, I think your biggest pitfalls in post-op management are more along the lines of trying to do too much too too fast. Definitely. Um, and so I think this is just kind of my rambling mind going on right now. Um, but I think sometimes what, what you can potentially get in that situation is you do too much a little bit too quick and then your rehab is filled with a whole bunch of ebbs and flows. So you have, you know, times your rehab's going really well and then you maybe maybe did too much. So now you're in a setback for a couple of weeks. And I think that that can weigh on the psychology of someone having all of those big increases and big decreases in, 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 in how their and how their rehab is going. So things seem to be going well, then they have a big drop off. Things are going well, then they have a big drop off. So me personally, I would rather have a slow, gradual improvement, right? Uh, especially, especially within the post-op world uh, versus have a lot of, a lot of ebbs and flows. Um, and that could potentially come into the, you know, psychosocial side of, of, you know, your, your, your kind of pain science education, where those psychological factors of, oh my gosh, I'm, my knee's getting worse. Did I, you know, did I significantly set back? Am, am I going to need to get surgery again? Even getting back to play quickly, those type of things. Exactly. All, all, all along those lines. That, that, I mean, that's probably how I would use it with my, with my post-op patients. That, that was a, a bit of a tangent. I kind of no, worked no, you nailed it. a little bit. Um, and, and you brought up yeah. a, a good point. The point that, that I thought was very, very insightful is, clinicians trying to do too much too early, or maybe those that don't have experience with a particular surgery or post-op, um, not necessarily doing enough because they're fearful of messing up the surgery. So I think this brings us back to a common thread from a lot of the things that we've been talking about is about that, that therapeutic dose of loading is not doing too much, but not doing too little, finding words just right. And I think what you were saying with post-ops is if you get too aggressive and you really try to push that, you know, knee flexion, knee extension, shoulder flex, whatever it might be for that post-op, 
you're really going to be overloading, overdosing the stress through the joint, creating more inflammation, more irritability, and, and really taking away from the range of motion. I, th I think I see this the most with total knees, is we get a little impatient and we start to really crank. And sometimes the patients even encourage us to crank, you know, do what you got to do, doc, to get, to, get it, uh, to get it where it needs to go. So I think that's a very important point, looking at that symptom irritability and really coaching our patients on saying, I know that your, you know, your surgeon may have told you, you know, just get out there and walk as much as you can. But if you don't have good quad control and you're, you know, you're walking on a stiff knee, those tibiofemoral joint forces are, are going to be increased. You don't have that, that eccentric control of knee flexion during the loading phase to dissipate those ground reaction forces. And I think, um, you know, walking on a stiff knee, you know, for as much as you can may not be you know, beneficial early on in the, in the post-operative rehab, especially for a knee surgery. Um, same reason why our, you know, our ACLs, you know, have to get that quad control back as, as we start to discharge them from their crutches and from the brace. So even your shoulders as well, you know, you don't want to crank on a shoulder. I usually go um, to where they feel it, not through where they feel it. And then with each subsequent repetition of the passive range, I try to go a little bit deeper, really desensitize them early on. Um, did you have a thought there, Mike? I saw that you uh, looked like you wanted to jump in. Um, not necessarily. I'm just, you know, thinking along the lines of I've had a few patients that I tell them, hey, I, I think we might need to back off the activity a little bit. And they are not excited about it at all. And, yes. and, and, this, and this is more talking along that same population, that, yeah. that like total knee population. I'm just going to keep doing it. I'm just going to keep doing it. So I'm just curious what you, what you have said previously to those patients to try and get a little bit of, a, a little bit of buying and, and maybe meet them halfway or something right. along those lines. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I mean, that, that's bringing in the psychosocial component that with regardless of the patient, we really can't avoid. I think, one, it's a very stressful situation as far as people wanting to get back to what they're doing. And I think any regression or decrease in, in loading or activity or volume intensity, whatever it might be, can be perceived as failure. So that definitely takes some, some coaching. And the way that I explain it, if you look at any um, you know, strength and conditioning periodization program or um, seasonal strengthening program, I think our rehab has been designed to become very linear. Um, as far as, you know, we need to make it harder, more voluminous, more intense each subsequent visit. And I really try to coach my patients about um, active rest days. So what that means is if, regardless of whether it's post-op or acute pain, let's say we have, you know, an acute shoulder patient. I've been doing passive range of motion, active assisted, maybe some low level um, isometrics against gravity. Their symptom irritability is dropping as their uh, resiliency to activity improves and we start strengthening. We start to kind of flirt with some low-level loading um, with some resistance. And it's really using our experience to really kind of, you know, read our patient and figure out what, what that therapeutic load looks like early on before we really transition to aggressive strengthening. So more frequently than not, when I'm trying to figure out their dose, um, you know, sometimes you'll overdose. You'll just, you know, you get that overzealous patient, you succumb to the pressure, and you overdose them too early, and they come in flared up. So really, this is um, looking back to what we discussed regarding looking at symptom irritability and using a stage-based approach. They might come in and I might completely regress them back to where they were where they were in symptom modulation. I might do some passive range, try to desensitize them a little bit, go back to my active assisted range of motion, my low-level isometrics just for a visit, let them know, hey, you know, you didn't have a setback. You just had a really hard workout. It's kind of like you went to the gym and you hadn't gone to the gym in a while and, and you're really sore. So we're going to do an active rest day. We're going to keep the shoulder moving. 
And once you recover from today, you'll see you'll come back stronger. You'll be able to handle that same load and you won't you won't be as sore as you were last time. So part of that is really setting up the expectation on eval of, hey, this is not a linear process. You will not get better each visit. You will get a little better. And then as we progress our load and our resistance, you're going to be sore. You're going to be painful. You're going to feel like you've regressed once you recover. We'll do it again. You'll tolerate a little bit more load. And that process will repeat itself throughout rehab. Um, so I think going back to what we were saying about day one education, I think really regardless of the patient, setting up the expectation that it's not a linear progression, that it's very you know, up and down as far as what you're going to feel. But with each you know, long-term analysis of, of the plan of care, you should see progress compared to day one. And I think uh, a lot of patients are actually surprised when they come in and they tell me they're flared up and I don't necessarily overreact or you know, throw everything that I've set up out the window and do a re-evaluation. I really kind of say, okay, you know, we progress some loading. We're going to do an active rest day. We're going to regress some stuff. I think once you recover, we'll get back to loading. You'll see, you'll see that you'll be able to handle it with, with less soreness. And usually when that does occur, it, it improves the buy-in. Um, it really helps them understand that, you know, this guy knows what he's talking about and you're able to predict what they experience. So I think that goes back to setting up the day one education, setting up the expectations of what rehab is actually like. Yeah. I could not agree more. I think as you were going through, there are about three or four times where you touched on something that I was thinking about at that moment. So very well said, David, as always. And I think I think that comes from our shared experiences, shared mentors. We have a lot of the same background. So I think, especially at Pitt, we, we do talk a lot about pain science and, and how it influences care. Um, so let's let's move past those acute and post-op patients just because we will have an entire episode dedicated to post-op patients and, um, you know, how we handle that situation, especially, you know, being a traveler and being in those less uh, affluent areas where maybe you don't get a protocol or uh, it's a random surgery and the communication with the physician may not be as, you know, as direct as we would like it to be. So when it comes to our, our chronic pain patients, what are some things that you look for in eval, things that you assess for? And how do you tailor your approach to be individualized to that patient? Yeah, so uh, a lot of things. I mean, one, obviously, your comorbidities. Um, someone comes in with six other underlying health conditions, you know, that, that might raise a little bit uh, of an alarm for me. Like that, this could be someone that, you know, I have to work some, some potential other things into other than just biomechanical stuff. Right. Um, someone... Things like their weight, if someone's severely obese, some of those lines, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining just the, just extra inflammation that comes with excess body fat, uh, something along, along that can kind of come into play um, with how I think rehab might go. Yeah. And so I think, I think it, it's looking at the, the kind of psychosocial stuff initially um, with regards to your, your chronic patients. Overall, um, and then I think a lot of times with those patients, I found that most of my eval early on is just listening because right. a lot of them have a lot of other things going on. So spend that first day kind of getting to know that person, and your exercise prescription is probably going to be pretty simple for them. It's going to be something simple along the lines of, "Hey, why don't we go for some walks? Why don't we do these three, four simple exercises?" And that doesn't take too much eval time to figure out how you want to start this person on the right path. So I think the most important thing on that first visit for some of those patients is to, to just get that buy-in. And I think that can easily be done by just sitting there and just listening. Right, right. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. 
something that I have personally experienced um, in my practice. I used to work at a at a musculoskeletal clinic with PM and R doctors, and essentially the patients that we would get would would all be chronic pain. But what I noticed with this population is that it's not very uniform. It's actually very very diverse. But I did see some patterns after after my time of working in this clinic, and a few patterns that I saw were, you know, there were those that were in a you know less fortunate socioeconomic status that didn't receive the quality of care, a lot of comorbidities, poor health literacy that just kind of snowballed into a state of deconditioning, you know, false beliefs regarding movement and exercise. And then interestingly enough, on the other end of the spectrum, I encountered patients who were actually, you know, in a very, very um, well-off socioeconomic status and uh, economic situation who had a lot of access to care. And one thing that I found very interesting is that those that had access to care actually overutilized interventions. Um, these were the people that had a little ache or pain and you know, had the money and access to a surgeon who performed an operation. And, you know, 10 years later in their 50s, now they've had a few fusions and, you know, meniscectomies and whatever it might be trying to trying to achieve that perfection as far as, you know, not being in pain and being able to do what they want. So I thought those were pretty interesting. And then the other ones that I encountered are going to be the ones that just got bad information. You know, they might have sprained their ankle. They might have got booted at the ER, went to their ortho who said, you know, stay off it and rest for six weeks and didn't really follow up with therapy, have any guidance. And um, they're the ones that were underdosed in activity and really developed a state of of decreased resiliency or deconditioning um, at that particular joint that's been chronically painful. So I do want to touch on some topics that that you were mentioning regarding biomechanics. So I think one important topic is Sometimes when we have a patient who has chronic pain in front of us, we kind of end up having tunnel vision in regards to saying, all right, well, they're chronic, so let's use the biopsychosocial approach. Let's do the pain science education. And we start to um, forget that the patient can also present with legitimate orthopedic complaints in addition to their, to their chronic pain complaints. And at the beginning, you're right, it's very difficult to sift through it and probably not recommended to start off evaluating a patient in that in that regard just because you will be reinforcing or you would be reinforcing that uh, you know pathoanatomical biomechanical you know there's something wrong with me type of approach but I would also advise clinicians to consider those aspects if if you feel they're they're relevant and then in regards to what you're saying with like nutrition sleep and even some undiagnosed conditions you know I had a woman who had some ulnar deviation of both of her hands she had you know, very obvious RA, um, autoimmune disease, um, but was undiagnosed and was being seen for chronic pain. So I think these opportunities, as far as referring to dietetics, referring to a rheumatologist, really help push our profession forward in regards to being able to communicate with other providers, showing our intelligence and, and how much we have in our body of knowledge to be able to make an accurate referral. I think it'll um, help improve how much other disciplines respect us as far as healthcare providers. And then what you were saying about validation and listening. I think a lot of people with chronic pain end up trying to have providers explain their pain away, essentially talk them out of, out of what they're feeling or saying that what they're feeling isn't either realistic or is being exaggerated because you know, their imaging or whatever it might be um, doesn't match. So I really, I really liked what you were saying about just completely listening during the, during the evaluation. 
and really not trying to interrupt or educate too early. I think whenever we start to learn and, and implement pain science, one thing that I've particularly fallen victim to, and I've seen other clinicians also do, is really trying to educate too much too early. A lot of these patients really have multiple uh, channels of information, and some of them you know, have been dealing with this for years, and they really really feel like there's no way anyone else could really understand what I'm going through because they've met me for 10 minutes and I've been dealing with this for five years. So I really, really try to listen. I try not to over-educate too early and I allow the questions to kind of come, come to me in regards to, you know, how is this exercise going to help me or how is squeezing my stomach or, you know, squeezing my cheeks, my butt cheeks here going to, going to make me feel better. Um, And that's when we can get into those gradual loading, desensitization discussions. And then I think also looking at what their story is. The reason I brought up the example of those patients early on in my career working at the musculoskeletal clinic is because each patient has their own unique story of how they arrived at that particular place in their life. So really connecting their story to your pain science education is going to help build that trust. So if they got bad information, talking about gradual loading and how that's going to improve their resiliency to activity. If they're fearful of certain movements like bending forward because a doctor told them or whoever told them that if you bend forward, you're going to throw your back out and need surgery, really starting to use more of a graded exposure approach to fearful activity. Whereas if it's just deconditioning, you're going to be doing more of that graded exercise, which is what we would do with everyone anyways, is the gradual loading component and probably a combination of, of both for for each patient. Anything you want to add to that, Mike? I feel like I kind of did all my, my usual tangent thing there. So I'll let you tag back in here. No, yeah. Uh, I, I, I really liked what you were, a lot of things that, that you were talking about are just in reference to movement. And I think, I think it's important that we as clinicians, as we learn more about the pain science, we learn more about diet, we learn more about all these other things that we don't forget who we are. Um, and that's the people that are going to be responsible for movement. And with this, within this population, potentially just changing that person's perception about movement um, and those things. So, so I, I think that with all the stuff that we're learning on being able to see this patient as a as a, a as a, a whole patient, it's super important to understand a little bit about nutrition, a little bit about psychology, and all these other things. But, but our our focus needs to be centered around movement and getting this person kind of doing some sort of activity. And we can kind of give them little tips and tricks for some of the other stuff along the way. But I think right. it's important to know when someone's someone else's expertise might be better than ours and kind of swallowing our, our swallowing our, our pride a little bit and, and getting them out and, and getting them to potentially some sort of other healthcare provider that, that might be able to assist them better than we can. Definitely, definitely. And I think like you like you touched on, it's important to remember our realm of accepting, you know, the psychosocial components and really addressing the psychology in regards to movement. And if, if there are an abundance of psychosocial components, really referring to a psychologist or someone else to help, help address some of those more uh, stressful components that contribute to their experience. And I think bringing up that topic can be a little rough. I think suggesting that someone go to a psychologist is always a hard conversation. Um, so I think really building that trust for the first few visits, I wouldn't necessarily jump into recommending it on the first visit. I think it could come off as, you know, you're crazy. Um, which a lot of people will get defensive of. But I think as they start to trust you and trust your recommendations, there are ways to um, bring up that conversation. One thing that you did mention is that, you know, us being the the experts in movement, 
there's been a lot of debate and discussion. This is within clinicians that I've you know encountered on my travels, and even within the realm of, of social media, you know, debates and and whatnot regarding the role of movement analysis in posture. And this is actually going to be our topic for next week: is looking at the role of movement movement analysis in posture and practice, and and is it actually relevant? There's a lot of studies that have been coming out that look at certain postures or certain movements, and you know these movements and postures are prevalent in those that have pain and those that don't have pain. So it's caused a lot of clinicians to question whether, you know, movement analysis or addressing posture and practice is actually relevant. I know, you know, I've seen a huge swing in momentum towards just, you know, get them exercising pain-free, gradually load them, don't really worry about movement analysis or posture or those things. So I won't necessarily share my opinions on those topics just yet. We'll save those for the the next episode, but it did give us a nice opportunity to at least introduce our topic for next week. So some things that I want to recap from from today's episode is looking at symptom irritability. Regardless of whether they're acute or chronic, um, that symptom irritability is going to be almost interpreted as our sensitivity to movement. And if they're acute, there might be a component of peripheral hyperalgesia due to inflammatory response with the central sensitization that we discussed previously. And if they're chronic likely more of those central sensitization changes. So using symptom irritability as your guide and really thinking about precise loading and gradual loading, setting up those expectations for soreness or pain that should last, you know, your 48 to 72 hours after activity. And then looking at not only chronic pain patients, I think it's a little bit easier with with those patients as far as using a graded exercise and, and graded exposure approach just because their symptoms are less predictable and we really don't have any other option than just gradually introducing general exercise. I think when it comes to acute patients, symptom irritability approach has kind of been hit or miss. I've seen a lot of perspectives in regards to, you know, you're weak, you need to get strong, you're tight, you need to stretch. And I've even seen, you know, conversations happen that describe, you know, a patient not progressing with therapy. And kind of what I've heard is, you know, people say, well, you know, you can do 20 single leg squats and you can do, you know, these complex um, exercises that, that, you know, that we see on Instagram and, you know, you can really do all these hard things. So I really don't know why you're still in pain. Look at all the hard things you can do. And I think that's kind of a difficult thing for a patient to, to really understand. And sometimes clinicians is if I can do all these things, but my real interest is just not being in pain anymore you know, where do we draw that line between emphasizing function and completely ignoring what the patient came to us for in the first place? Um, so what, what are your thoughts on that, Mike, as, as we wrap up here? Yeah, I'm, so I've never been a big fan of, you know, it hurts when I do this and a patient does some sort of like funky position. Right, and then right. the, the therapist that says, well, just don't do that. Yeah. You know, I, I, I've, never, I've never been big on that. Yeah. Um, now, I mean, there, there might be certain patients where, where I say that, you know, you're someone who's older and that position might not be safe for them because if they get into that position pretty consistently, they might fall down because they're 90 with average balance. Um, but, but you know, you're 45 year old, works around his yard a bunch, works around her, her yard a bunch. They're, they're active. They run. They, you know, they, they, they should realistically have the potential to get that motion back. Right. Um, I've always been someone that if someone comes to me like that, I say, well, why don't we try and figure out a way to make you be able to do that without pain? And and that is probably something that we'll end up touching on next episode with a lot of the the 
movement analysis stuff, see if we can find a, a couple little hitches in, in their giddy up, I guess, uh, yeah, to, and just, to, to, if we can address those. And then if nothing else, we, we've, we've treated some of the impairments that we found and hopefully that will get them able, able to do what, what they, what they want to do pain-free. Um, but yeah, so I, I think it's, I think it's something where I think we can, we can address what we can. And if nothing else, patients appreciate that, that we address something, even if they didn't get fully back to perfect. Right. And I think, I think, um, that's important to think about. There are boundaries. Like if you're twisting your arm, like a pretzel in some weird position and it hurts, then you know, obviously that's going to be one of those, like, when would you ever need to do that? But for example, if someone's, you know, I still have knee pain when lifting laundry off the floor, that's when we really need to look at, you know, is, is it their biomechanics that's, you know, loading a, let's say an irritated or overused or sensitized joint, or is it just their sensitized in general and we've got to gradually load them back to activity so we'll talk about that more in the movement analysis and posture and practice episode coming up next. But really, I think um, the, the main thing that I wanted to look at with this particular episode was getting away from they're weak, you just need to get strong. They're, they're tight, you just need to stretch. Really in the context of thinking about exercise, not only from gaining strength, but using it in a, in a therapeutic way to create nervous system changes, immunological changes, in regards to improving activity resiliency and activity tolerance. And then once, you know, they've reached that point where they tell me, hey, I have no pain at rest or minimal pain at rest, they they fall back to that low symptom irritability category. Now let's look at those strength impairments, those uh, muscle muscle tightness impairments, things that we think are either, you know, limiting um, their, their movement or limiting their ability to perform their activities, and then really starting to gear them to go back, whether it's strength, endurance, whatever it might be, you know, movement re-education if, if you uh, feel it's appropriate or relevant. So I think the whole idea that, that we wanted to portray with this podcast was pain science is going to be something that you use with every patient. It's really going to set up the patient for future education, help them understand how exercise is not only to build strength, but is used in a therapeutic fashion to help decrease pain, improve load tolerance, and really um, rehabilitate back to a previous level of function or even even better. So I think that's one thing that, that Mike and I were really exposed to as far as really learning about the treatment-based classification and looking at, you know, stage one, stage two, stage three, pain modulation, addressing impairments, return to function. It exists with the um, STAR shoulder symptom irritability scale. Um, there's a lot of new, or not necessarily new, but there's a lot of research that has been published regarding using symptom irritability to address a patient complaint to help gear us away from focusing so much on pathoanatomy. Because what what I've typically seen is, you know, globally, we've said, you know, pathoanatomy, your imaging is not relevant to what you experience. But then we find ourselves asking, well, you know, what do you do for that patient with a meniscus tear? What are your best meniscus tear exercises? Really trying to create a a match between a pathoanatomical diagnosis and exercise prescription. Um, so I think um, these symptom irritability approaches will help us get away from that. And part of understanding and utilizing a symptom irritability approach is going to be a comprehensive understanding of not only pain neuroscience from the perspective of a chronic pain or a patient with chronic pain, but how pain science works even with acute pain. Any final thoughts, Mike? No, I think I think you you hit them all. Uh, so yeah, I mean the the big things are I think 
listen listen to your patients get buy-in and getting getting a, a good rapport with your patient early on can open up potential for a future dialogue and help you guys kind of work together to get them where they want to be versus you just kind of dictating everything. Uh, I think something that might might also be cool to look into, uh, we won't get into it for the sake of this podcast, but just other adjunct therapies that patients can do outside of us, whether it be med- meditation, right. um, sort of like progressive muscle relaxation, yoga, even things along the lines of diaphragmatic breathing, uh, simple interventions right. uh, along those lines are a little bit outside of our, our time frame for this podcast, but all, all, all potential things that, that might be things to add in outside of outside of therapy uh, for some of these patients. Right. I think that's a good point as far as mindfulness and meditation. And I think, you know, one final thought here is as far as using pain scales for those patients with with chronic pain, it becomes very difficult because most of them are going to rank, you know, seven or above severe, and it may not actually match their load tolerance. So what you'll see with these patients is actually a mismatch between perceived load tolerance and actual load tolerance and trying to get those two to meet somewhere is something that we should definitely focus on. But a question that I like to ask is how often do you find yourself thinking about your pain? Like how often throughout the day would you say it preoccupies your thoughts? Um, So some people will say 100% of the time constantly, you know, I can't do anything where I'm not thinking about it. Or some people will say, you know, 50% of the time I'll wake up, I feel okay. But then by the time I do what I need to do, I find myself thinking about it constantly. So I think really um, getting insight into how much time and energy and focus that patient dedicates to their pain is really going to help you identify maybe some of those individuals that might really benefit from mindfulness or meditation, kind of like you were alluding to there. We'll kind of leave it with those thoughts. I'm sure Mike and I could stay rambling here for for hours, um, but for the sake of time, we'll we'll end. Next week's episode is going to be the role of movement analysis and posture and practice, um, really looking at is movement analysis relevant what's you know normal movement variability versus abnormal movement variability, or if there's even such a thing, and is posture relevant? And I think this is going to be a very uh, controversial episode in regards to how people you know react to it, because I know there's a lot of polarity into and to how people interpret these particular topics. <laughs> yep, I am looking forward to next week for sure. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for, so as we were saying, a physical therapy podcast. Really appreciate you guys listening in. We hope you have a great day and that you'll join us for the next week's episode.